Why do we go through the process of ordination? Well, it's because we read in Scripture that that's what happened, is that the apostles, the leaders of the church, when they recognized that men and women had the call of God in their life, they, they laid hands on them, they ordained them, and we read throughout the New Testament how men and women of God were used and did great things on mission fields and working in churches, and we're continuing that tonight because we believe that is the biblical pattern. And as I said earlier, uh, we don't believe for a second that the Assemblies of God or that the Ohio Ministry Network ordains anyone. We're involved in the process, but what this is really about, and the ordination candidates have heard this over and over again, but it's so true is that we're recognizing what we believe God has done. God is the one who has called these individuals and all the credentialed ministers and leaders who are in the room tonight, uh, not the assemblies of God. But it is assemblies of God. It is brothers and sisters in the Lord who come along and say, we recognize, and that's really important. Where would we be without the confirmation of brothers and sisters in the Lord? So it's crucial, but we're recognizing what God has done and not what someone else has done. So no one here tonight is here hopefully, because someone pressured them or someone put their arm behind their back and said, you got to do it. Now, not that we haven't encouraged, but uh, we haven't pressured anybody like that. This is between them and the Lord, and it's so critical because it better be between them and the Lord because this is a warm, fuzzy room tonight. Don't you love it? I could take a little bit of this every day. It'd be awesome. But unfortunately, uh, we all can't decide on living in one place. So if this is a normal gathering, we're all going to go to about 500 different places when we leave. And so what we take with us is, of course, the spirit that's here, but there's going to come trying times in ministry. And many of these ordination candidates tonight have already been through that. So many in the room have, as well. And in those moments, it better be the Lord. It better be the Lord that called us because he's the one who's faithful. He's the one who equips us. He's the one who will sustain us. We can always rely upon God. So that is the biblical and the cultural context in which we celebrate the call of God on these lives tonight. And they are some special lives. You know, we say this every year, but we, we really do. I, I tease my former superintendent, Robert Crabtree. Uh, when I worked for him, I had occasion to hear him once or twice or three times or whatever, quite a few times. And he was so consistent in saying, now this is the best youth director in the United States. Now we've got the best women's director. Of course, his wife was the women's director, so that was pretty smart. But I heard that a couple times, and the first time I was naive enough to believe it. You know, yeah, I think so too. And then he kept it up, and he kept it up, and he kept it up. And I thought, now, Really? Could we all possibly be the best in the whole? Because he made us believe that we were. And, and doggone it if I'm not saying the same thing now. I really believe it's true. We've got the best. And tonight, this ordination class, my goodness, we've got pastors in this class represented tonight. Pastors who've been pastoring just a few years. Others have been pastoring for quite a few years. We've got counselors represented tonight. Missionaries. We've got wor uh, worship leaders, several of them in this class this evening. Youth pastors and associate pastors of several kinds. We've even got church planners. We've got a great army tonight, and we're thrilled that you are signing up for this thing called the kingdom of God in service right here in the state of Ohio. We welcome you, and we need you, and we're glad that the Lord has placed this calling upon your life. So our meetings this week have been under the umbrella of IF, and that's why you see out in the lobby, if you came in that way, a great... Uh, drawing, rendering, and chalk from uh, one of the young gentlemen here at the church with our theme, if. And uh, tomorrow, hopefully, uh, we get through our business, uh, we're going to talk about some things the Lord is doing in our hearts and our lives, and the if uh, potential that's represented there t t uh, in our lives. Tonight, however, I want to talk about an if-then experiment. An if-then Experiment. We're going to look together at some scriptures in 1 Peter and 2 Peter in the New Testament and put this principle to work and see if it's really true that what Peter shared with his readers and with us on multiple occasions, the if part and then the then part, we're going to see if that was really true because that has huge consequences. Think about in your life all the if situations. There are too many. But what if... What if he'd never popped the question? Man, wow, your life would be different, wouldn't it? What if she never said yes? Man, we just have to write the whole script all over again. What if that church had not invited us? What if we had said 
no to that church. <laughs> Thank God. What if we'd said yes to that one, right? <laughs> huge consequences. Huge consequences for all the if situations in our life every day, every year. Big ones and little ones. And Peter lays this out for his, his readers in First and Second Peter. So what I want to look at tonight is, is can we trust what Peter wrote? Can we do an experiment tonight to find out if what he said would happen on the other side of if? If you do this, then. Now, it's one thing to write those promises, but it's another thing to see if it actually happened in the person's life. And that's the benefit that we have as New Testament believers, that we get to see many of these leaders who wrote, and we also get to see what they did in their lives. It's going to be fun, I think, tonight to to see if Peter lived up through his life what he was sharing in his message. Did Peter just write some cool thoughts? Or did he live out what he later shared? Because he wrote these books at the end of his life. So we can look back earlier in the Gospels. We can look back earlier in the book of Acts before he wrote First and Second Peter to see if there's truth that Peter experienced what he was talking about. And of course you already know the answer is going to be yes. Spoiler alert there. But the Spirit did then what he's still doing today in every minister, in every leader, in every person who declares the word of God. He's choosing vessels to share the message who are living out that message. He chooses people who have proven themselves as these ordination candidates have. We, we have gone through a process, and they can tell you all about it at length, the interviews and the reference checks. We, we don't just lay hands on, on leaders and ministers lightly like the New Testament warns us not to do. We don't do it quickly. We've investigated. We've gotten references, and these folks all testify that these folks are living out the message that they are sharing. Now, it's not like the the vessel we're talking about tonight, Peter, it's not like he or any minister of the gospel didn't have imperfections. Anybody who knows Peter knows that's, that's the case. He had plenty of them. But how principled we are will always trump how perfect we aren't. Aren't you thankful that God takes our mistakes and all of our imperfections, and as long as our hearts are in the right place and we're willing to keep learning, he keeps using us. Now, Peter, of course, is a great example in, in having some rough edges. As you read about Peter in the Gospels, and some of you know all these stories and more, some of you maybe haven't heard of all these, but just a quick list. I mean, is it just me, or did Peter kind of have a knack for ruining the moment? I mean, he just did. Have you, do you have people like that in your life? You know, <laughs> maybe you've been there, maybe it was me, I don't know. But, boy, they just seem really gifted at taking a really powerful moment and an awesome experience and just saying the wrong things. Oh, wow, thanks for that. Uh, Jesus was showing the disciples his power on the stormy sea, invited Peter out to walk on the water, and just when things were getting really good, the moment was happening, Peter looks down and he gets troubled and glub, 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 he just falls into the water. Jesus is telling the disciples about the greatest plan of salvation for all time. This hasn't just been in the work for centuries. It's been in the works in the heavens forever. And Jesus is sharing the secret, the big moment with his disciples. And he says, the son of man will be crucified. And then he will be raised up on the third day. And Peter said, not so Lord, that's not going to happen. I refuse for that to happen. Thanks, Peter. Um, we were going somewhere with this, but Peter had to share. He had to share. Jesus, I love this one. I love this one. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. These two Old Testament folks come back to life, and literally James and John and Peter can see Jesus on the mountain with these glowing uh, figures, Moses and Elijah. And instead of just enjoying the moment or, or bowing down in reverence, Peter says, um, oh, let's build a tabernacle. A tabernacle for Jesus, a tabernacle for Moses, a tabernacle for Elijah. Let's do that. And the scripture says the reason he said it was because he was so fearful he felt like he had to say something. You ever been in those moments like the silence just killing you? You got to say something? You ever met people like that? That's with Peter. Oh, let's say something. And then everybody was like, no, no, we're not going to do that. But thanks. He, he was very gifted. Jesus, 
was washing the disciples' feet, teaching them the ultimate lesson in servitude. And Peter's protest, no, you can't do that. Just almost ruined the moment. I'm not done. He was praying so fervently, Jesus was. Drops of sweat that looked like blood were coming. People, some people believe they actually, it was blood. He was praying that hard as he preparing to be arrested and go to be crucified. That's how hard Jesus is praying. And Peter fell asleep when the prayer meeting had just started. He couldn't even stay awake an hour when Jesus is about to give his life. On his way to be tried and crucified, Jesus is being arrested by a crowd of big, angry guards. Now, Jesus knows. That's why he was sweating and bleeding. He already knew what was ahead of him. And here's the crowd, and they're big, and they're angry, and they've got weapons, and they're going to arrest him. And Jesus knows that these folks are going to treat him very cruelly and very poorly for the next few hours until he is ultimately crucified. But thank God for Peter. He's there, man. He has got his master's back. And so in that moment, he takes a sword, and in order to free his master, he cuts off the soldier's ear. Yes, yes, Peter, thank you so much for that. That's, that's going to really help. It helped nothing. It just made angry people even angrier. And Jesus is saying, oh, that's going to hurt. I'm going to get a real whipping from that guy. It, thank you, Peter, for your help. Uh, seriously, off the record, have you ever thought if Jesus ever said anything to Peter, like, Peter, come on, dude, a little help, you're killing me here. Seriously, what's up with this? No, of course, Jesus knew that in advance, and you all believe what I believe, that part of the reason for that was just to help you and I, because we have a knack for ruining some moments too. And if God can take someone like Peter, I didn't even talk about the, the denial, did I? If he can take someone like Peter and work a masterpiece in his life, then what can he do with you and me? I'm so, so thankful for all of my failed attempts being under the blood. We could go on and on for hours, the mistakes we made. I remember my first sermon I ever preached. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, my goodness. Thank God for for the lack of video back in those days. Isn't that incredible? Oh. Remember that first all-nighter I scheduled as a youth pastor after we had a newborn baby? And I told the parents, no, we don't need any help. We got this, right? Oh, mistakes. Mistakes. Scheduling, scheduling yourself to preach the night after George Wood. <laughs> so stupid. Ugh. Ugh. Aren't we all glad God takes pleasure in turning our ruined moments into his royal masterpiece, which is what Peter's life became, an incredible masterpiece of devoted, anointed, and remarkable service for the kingdom which is why he's an encouragement to us tonight. So under that theme, if, let's look at a few items from Peter's, Peter's letters that he wrote to his readers in this if-then experience. These are three, these are multiple things that he said. He didn't say them once. He said them two, three, four times in these short letters. So he believed them. Let's find out if he lived them. Recurring themes, if-then, in Peter's life. First of all, if you can remain humble then God will lift you up at the perfect time. If you can remain humble, then God will lift you up at the perfect time. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. He wrote in a different verse, In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of those who are over you. And all of you serve each other in humility, for God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. What a contrary paradox. Gaining position, being lifted up in honor by God, nonetheless, simply because you're willing to let someone else have the glory. That's not talked about too much today. People don't don't put that out there, but that's exactly what Peter is telling us. Now let's see if that was true in his life. Winding back to Luke chapter 5, we see really the first experience that Peter was having with Jesus. He'd seen perform a miracle or two, and he and the disciples, many of them who were fishermen like Peter, had been out all night, and they had their nets out, and they couldn't catch one fish. So at the end of the night, they're back in the, in the harbor. They're putting their nets away, cleaning all their nets, really kind of upset that they had a, a terrible day. And that's when Jesus chooses to come along and, and say the following things. Now, before he, he gives this instruction, 
understand that this is Jesus who hadn't been all night, out all night trying to catch the fish like Peter had. He hadn't just finished cleaning up all the nets and putting them away like Peter had. And he wasn't even a fisherman like Peter was or like Peter thought he was. And then Jesus, in that context, makes the suggestion, go out and try it all over again. But, but there was a genius suggestion. What will really be different, seasoned fishermen, is if you let the nets out on the other side of the boat. Try that. You're Peter. What are you going to say to someone like that? Well, he could have said a lot of things probably, but here is where Peter nailed it because he knew who Jesus was. He said, personally, Jesus, it's really not what I would consider option number one for a whole lot of reasons, but here's the point where he got it. Nevertheless, because you are the master, because you are the master, I will defer to what I thought we maybe should do. I'll do what you want because you are the master. And you know the story. They went out, let their nets out on the other side. Not only were they so full that they started to break, but they invited their friends out and their nets got full of fish again. And Peter nailed the humility part again. In humility, he kneeled down in front of Jesus and he confessed, Lord, you are holy. You must go away. I am a a man of sin. He knew who deserved all the praise and all the glory, even when it didn't make sense. When you are under spiritual authority, can I just share with you, I believe you are in the best situation. You are in a win-win situation. Whether or not you identify it, whether or not every day you say, I'm under the authority of my pastor, I'm under the authority of my local church, I'm under the authority of Assemblies of God, whatever it might be. When you regularly live out your life with that awareness, you are in a win-win situation. I lived this myself. In so many years of my life and my ministry, I have been serving others. I have been under the authority, and I still today am under the authority of others. And I love being under authority. Why is it a win-win? Because if the authority that is over you is actually making the right decisions, they have heard from the Lord, and this is the path we're going to take, and you're on that team, score one for everybody. That's a win, right? You win. Whether or not you wanted to, you chose to be humble and follow the leadership you were under. You're part of the team. You win. Here's the part I love. Even when you're right and your leaders in the aftermath missed it, you still win. Because heaven saw what no one else maybe was seeing. That you were under authority and that you recognized whether or not I agree with this, I recognize God's authority. I recognize the purpose of humility, and I will serve. I will defer because I recognize that God operates through authority, through those are over me in my life, and that's where I want to remain under the blessing and the covering of God. You might lose in the short term. You might see a decision that's reached that that affects you in a way that is adverse. It might affect your schedule. It might affect your business. It might affect your finances. It might affect the ministry scope that you're in. But in the long run, you will look back and say, thank God I was humble. Thank God I recognized the authorities in my life. And, of course, this is what we see Peter doing. What are the benefits of being on a team? Well, we're all part of this voluntary cooperative fellowship. We get to... We get to go together. You've heard the African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's fun. It's life-giving to be part of a team. If it's continually bad, I'm not saying that anywhere in Scripture it would say that you stay under a situation that is continually harmful. Uh, You need to use your brain. But if in general you trust the leaders that you're under, then in those moments where you defer, be glad, rejoice, because God is watching and he will lift you up. That's what Peter said. He didn't say humble yourself when everyone else agrees with you. He said, based on his own experience, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. If you do this faithfully, God will lift you up at the perfect time. Second experiment let's conduct tonight. Peter said on multiple occasions, if you master your tongue then God's blessing will amaze you. That's what Peter said on multiple occasions. If you can get control of this tongue, and if you were writing today, he might say, control of your tongue, control of the index finger that's about to hit send or post it to social media, right? Same effect. Get control of that. If you can control that through the Spirit, then God's blessing on your life will amaze you. First Peter 3, 8 and 9, he said, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with one another. 
Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate when insults with people insult you and hurt you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. They insult you. You bless them. Go figure. That's what he said. Because that is what makes the most sense. No, that's not what he said. Because that is the east. No, it's not the Oh, that's it. That is what God has called you to do. That's what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. And Peter knew about being insulted. He had plenty of experience. Certainly in the world, sometimes the insults came from the hands of other Christians, from the things they were saying. Notice that what Peter just wrote about loving everybody and getting along and don't, don't repay evil for evil, it's set in the context of brothers and sisters. It's not set in the context of the world. It applies there too, but it's about getting along with one another and ministry in the church. Don't, don't return an insult when you're insulted. Return blessing. But let's be real. That's the worst, isn't it? It's the worst. When the world acts like the world, well, we're kind of prepared for that. We're not happy, but we're not surprised. But when those insults, those distracting hassles and frustrations come from fellow believers... Mm, that's not so easy, right? You ever tempted like me? You want to pick up the phone, call Jack Bauer? Hey, uh, I got a job for you. Huh? I, I don't care how. I really don't care how. I don't, I don't even want to know. I don't even know. Just make sure it can't get traced back to me, all right? That's all here. Which that wouldn't have been so hard to imagine Peter doing if he was the Peter that we read about in the Gospels. But now after he's taken on the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, this is not how he responded in Acts chapter 11. Instead, we find Peter in Acts chapter 11 higher than a kite. He's higher than a kite because a whole house full of people just got filled with the Holy Spirit. Spoke in tongues in Cornelius' house. Dr. Wood mentioned that last night. And then he gets back to church headquarters, having gone to Cornelius' house. Now he's back in Jerusalem, and he's, he's ready to testify. He's ready to say, we just had the the best Sunday of the year. We just had more people in church than we've ever had before. We just had dozens of people get saved and water baptized. In those moments, pastors, let's be real. What are you you kind of hoping to hear from your friends? You're not asking for the local newspaper to come in and celebrate. They don't get it. You're not asking for the mayor to say, hey, keep up that baptism thing. They don't get that. But among friends in the church, we're expecting to hear the good things and attaboys and attagirls. Sometimes we get texts and messages that, that are like, they didn't even see what happened. and They want to talk about the problems. What? Are you kidding me? Didn't you see what happened today? It's incredible. We've got to learn to control our tongue. So Peter gets called on the carpet. He gets called on the carpet after having revival, and he's called on the carpet by Christians. There's some old associates, and, and they're very concerned because the, where the revival happened was among people who were not circumcised. What do you think you're doing, we see in Acts chapter 11, they said to him. You're rubbing shoulders with that crowd of Gentiles. You're eating what is prohibited, and you're ruining our good name. Peter, get your priorities straight. People who are more concerned about keeping people out of church than they are keeping people out of hell. Completely missing the point. When you see that with grace, hopefully with a lot of help from other brothers and sisters and the right leadership, that perspective needs swiftly refuted by men and women with spiritual spines so that we don't stand for that in the church of Jesus Christ today. Look, we can't have it both ways. Either heaven is awesome and hell is hot and one day soon billions of people are going to discover one or the other or all of that is a lie, right? That's the way it is. So if it's a lie, if we don't believe that, then sure, we can maintain churches that function like family cliques and bless me clubs. And we can be a little bit picky about who we let in the door if that's all a lie. But more and more spirit-filled believers, and I believe there's a room full of them here tonight, are convinced to our core, based on what we read in Scripture and what we see in the world, That if it's true that we can gather for exactly 90 minutes week after week in our climate-controlled rooms here in the United States, 
with reasonably soft chairs, worshiping with the aid of great projectors and listening to pastors and ministers, many of whom have degrees and ongoing training and counseling, like hundreds of millions of believers around the world do not, then we of all people could probably find a way to get over ourselves and make church a little more welcoming to people with messed up lives who are headed to hell if somebody doesn't do something quick. The time is running out. Jesus is coming back. We can't have it both ways. And the Jewish believers didn't want converted Gentiles thinking they were going to heaven unless they became circumcised like them. Now, based on what Peter wrote, the guy who cut off a guy's ear, we might expect him just to lay him out, but not this time. Under the influence of the Spirit, Peter just did a beautiful job explaining to them why this is actually what had happened according to God's will. Now, in their defense, those Jewish Christians, they were just stumbling over what Paul himself in Ephesians 3 called the great mystery. So it was mysterious and not everyone got it, especially the Jews who were just getting saved at that time. Even after Pentecost, it remained a mystery to a lot of people that God's plans for the body of Christ included the welcoming in of Jews and Gentiles. But if you read scripture, it's right there in the family tree of Jesus. Now, John 1, of course, helps us understand that Jesus is the son of God. And, of course, we believe he's fully God and fully man. And it's Matthew chapter 1 that helps us understand he is also the son of man. It's there in chapter 1 of Matthew, we read the genealogy of Jesus. We see his earthly family tree. We see it starting with a man from Iraq who was raised to worship the moon. That's where Ur was, and that's what Abraham's family did. A man from Iraq is in the family tree of Jesus. And so is Tamar. She's a Canaanite woman. She's mentioned there. She's in the family tree of Jesus. Noah cursed his grandson Canaan, who was the son of Ham, Noah's grandson, from whom historians say most of the descendants of northern Africa came, and that's where Tamar came from. She was a Canaanite. And so was Rahab, who was in the family tree of Jesus. She was a harlot from Jericho. And so was Ruth, who was a Moabite, cursed, broken, outcast, marginalized people, are in the family tree of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles alike are in the family tree of Jesus. Palestinians and Lebanese and Egyptians and Ethiopians and Iraqis are all in the family of Jesus. And if scholars are right that the Moabites eventually ventured into Europe, then maybe there's even a little bit of white man in Jesus too. Who knows? (laughs) Royalty is in the family tree of Jesus. And so are refugees. The rich are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are paupers. Nobility is in the family tree of Jesus, and so are slaves. The physically whole are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are the disabled. The wise are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are the fools. The happily raised and happily married are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are orphans and widows. Criminals, adulterers, and murderers are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are victims, the innocent and the faithful. Blessed people are in the family tree of Jesus, and so are the cursed. Men and women, young and old, are in the family tree of Jesus. And that is the mystery of Christ. That the family tree of Jesus, which represents the spectacle and the variety that is the human race, has this close partner called the Calvary tree of Jesus, which is an unmistakable call from heaven that God has always had his sights on absolutely nothing less than all of the human race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, coming back to his family through faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. George Wood said it so well beautifully. He said, the integrated church is God's marvelous masterpiece for all the world to see. Think about that. What governments and entertainment and culture and the arts and education and medicine have tried and tried but have never succeeded to do, Jesus Christ is doing and he will keep doing so the world can see what the heart of the Father has always been. And there's no better place to show the world than in the Pentecostal church. 
For it was on the day of Pentecost that the Tower of Babel was reversed, breaking down walls between peoples. And the church was born. And until Christ returns, his church must continue to lead the way in this effort, not lag behind. For the sake of human hearts everywhere who know that there is something that truly unites all of us, saved and unsaved, know that the unsaved just can't put their finger on it. Something holds us all together, and we know what it is that all of us Every one of us are made in the image of God. We are all loved by God, and God wants all of us to accept forgiveness through his Son, Jesus Christ. All, all are welcome in the assemblies of God, and more importantly, all are welcome in the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter, with his spiritual spine intact, responds to his fellow believers, not by shouting back or condemning, when he probably felt that urge to do so, but by simply doing what you and I can do probably more often. He just blamed everything on God. That's what he did. Hey, fellas, yeah, you know, the Lord showed me the vision. God, God, he showed me this vision of a sheep being let down from heaven. God's spirit, him, he fell on all those Gentiles and they started speaking in tongues. God's spirit told me to follow the men who came to my door. It was God. It was God. Fellas, God did it all. And if God wants to give those Gentiles the same gift that he gave to us, well, who are we? Who am I that I could withstand what God wants to do? Do you want to withstand what God wants to do? Go ahead, but I don't want to withstand what God wants to do. Great way to place all these arguments. It's what God is doing. God's big enough. He can take it. That's what his word says. Peter was clear and firm. But he wasn't mean and nasty. He didn't back down, but he didn't overreact. Look at this room full of blood-blot Gentiles tonight. Look at all of you. Aren't you glad Peter had his tongue under the control of the Spirit? Because you read on there, God blessed that situation. They said, you know what, you're right. And then began the expansion of the gospel throughout the Gentile world. Peter continued in chapter 3, verse 10. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life, and see many happy days, then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil, do good, search for peace, work to maintain it, because the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open under their prayers, but the faith of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you can master your tongue, God's blessing will not only be all over you, It'll be over your family. It'll be over the ministry. It'll be over your situations and your circumstances. Let him control your tongue in ministry. I mentioned this uh, yesterday, I believe, and that is that the, the tongue is the part of the human body that heals more quickly than any other part of the human body. So you can bite your tongue. You can. You can bite it again and again and again and again. How many of you have done that, right? You can't believe sometimes after some of those Sundays At the end of the day, oh, it's still there. I've got a tongue. I can't believe it. I had to bite it so much. Under the grace of the Lord, learn learn when to control your tongue, when when to be quiet, when to speak up. The Holy Spirit will guide you, and you'll be blessed for it. Number three, if you suffer for his sake, then God will never fail you. If you suffer for his sake, God will never fail you. 1 Peter 2.21, God called you to do good even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he's your example. He suffered for you. Now you need to follow in his steps. Suffering, I mean, of course, not all suffering is the same. It's a relative term. This reminder that we're getting, of course, is coming from somebody who who gave his life because of his devotion to Christ. So what Peter means by suffering, maybe all of us are not on that same level. Hopefully we don't have to give our life, but it's still happening all over the world, like Miriam Ibrahim, we read about this past week, a 27-year-old wife who is eight months pregnant. She's been sentenced to death in Sudan. Her 20-month-old toddler has to live with her in the prison, is getting sick with all the diseases that are there. She's in prison in Sudan because she refuses to renounce her Christian faith. The officials in the Islamic government were notified of her Christianity, sadly, when her own brother, who is a Muslim, filed a complaint against her recently. You must forsake mother and father and brother and sister and Miriam Ibrahim along with countless individuals throughout history and even today are doing just that. Thankfully, though, for most of us, we're not suffering to that degree. We need to remember these folks in prayer. But suffering of any kind, no matter what its stripe, is even more difficult to handle 
when it's unanticipated. And that's why Peter's trying to help us get ready. Not only it's going to happen, but you're going to overcome it. Because if you're suffering for Christ, then God is not going to fail you. Get ready for it, but be of good cheer. God is not going to fail you. And that's why Peter repeatedly, throughout his letters, reminds people, expect suffering because of our commitment to God. Ordination class, what kind of suffering can we expect? Well, let me give a couple of caveats first. First of all, there's the suffering that happens because you and I are walking on planet Earth, right? Too often we're tempted to believe that, that someone's got a, uh, something against us, right? That's why, well, sometimes, but a lot of times just because we're here. This planet's in sin, and, and whether it's disease or whether it's, it's chaos, whatever it might be, that's just a, a fact of life, and it's sad, and it hurts, and it's terrible, but it doesn't mean that someone's out to get you. It doesn't mean God has forgotten you. We, we are living on a fallen planet. Secondly, and Peter even covers this in chapter 4, he said, you might suffer if you're meddling in people's affairs. You might suffer if you're gossiping, if you're stirring up trouble, if you're making unwise choices. So that kind of suffering happens, but let's not, again, hold that against God. The church isn't mad at us because we made some foolish choices. He even says you might suffer if you murder somebody. So keep that in mind, all right? Don't murder. He says don't steal. Any kind of that stuff, you're going you're to go through some suffering. So we're not talking about those two. We're talking about suffering for the sake of Christ that he refers to in 4.16 when he says it's not a shame to suffer for being a Christian. What kind of suffering? Well, you can expect attacks on you and your family. And you can expect that to really hurt you can expect that when, when things are said about your loved ones, your spouse, your children, you can expect to feel emotions that you didn't know you had before. It's going to hurt. It's going to happen. But God will be with you. He's not going to fail you. You can expect to suffer as a result of being misunderstood. My concern, my passion is that in this day and age of hypersensitivity, and men, are there a million reasons why we've got to be careful about what we say. But we cannot be so frightened, so concerned, so in tune with all everybody's sensitivities that week after week in our pulpits, in our youth groups, in our opportunities to counsel with folks, we don't say what needs to be said because we're, offended, we're worried about offending someone. We're going to have a whole generation of young people raised up in our churches, in Pentecostal churches, and they never heard anyone say, this is the right way, don't do that. Do this. You must do this. If you do that, you're going to be sorry. We don't say that because we're afraid that we're going to offend someone who's already made that mistake. Not that we can't be helpful. Not that we can't provide a world of, of grace and help and teaching for these people and love them one by one. But we can never sacrifice the truth that needs to be shared from this pulpit and in every opportunity we have as ministers to preach the word. You can expect to suffer whenever you take a stand for Christ. You can expect to suffer the loss of opportunities that seem to come to other people so easily because their path isn't as narrow as yours. You can expect to suffer when men revile you, as Jesus said, to persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely. And that's simply because you're a believer. You're standing up. You're a target. And I'm sorry on the one hand. I really am. Every week, every week, like in your church, every week, where we operate, we talk to ministers who are suffering because of the decisions they've made to serve the Lord, to follow his calling. I wish it were easier, but you know, you know, you know that your God will not fail you. You know that your reward is coming and that whatever sufferings we walk through in this life, they're going to pale in comparison to the glory that is about to be revealed and shared with us for eternity. P Peter says, God will never fail you. If you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, chapter 4, verse 19 Keep on doing it, even though you're suffering. Trust your lives to God. He created you, and he will never fail you. I don't always know why the suffering comes. I don't always know how long it's going to last. I never seem to guess exactly how hard it will be. Why is that? Is anyone else like me? Oh, this won't be that hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Wow. Woo. That was tough. We may not guess it right when it's about to happen. We may not ex know exactly when it's going to stop. But we know this, God will never fail us. God will never fail us. Time after time, Peter was in prison. Every time, God never failed him. In fact, when he was, he was suffering in prison, that intended suffering just turned around to be a blessing for the church and it moved him forward. Suffering has a lot of benefits, actually. 
not only in the eternal, but here and now. Learn to smile a little bit when suffering comes our way. Suffering can put us in a place where our prayer life grows more than it ever would had we not encountered that problem. True fact, isn't it? Absolutely. Suffering has a way of drowning out all the trivial distractions, many of them good. So we reach a place of total dependence on God, which is where we should be 24-7 anyways. Suffering steals our resolve, so the reality of what heaven is all about increasingly finds its way into shaping our future. Ooh, we're getting ready for heaven. We're getting ready for heaven. Let's keep focused on heaven. When we make this decision, let's keep heaven in mind. That's a good thing. Suffering, when handled with the end in mind, as we're going to see tomorrow night when Ann Stewart gets up here and shares her story, it has a way of opening doors for ministry that would never have happened otherwise. And suffering is a great teacher. It's hard for me to believe that 17 years ago at a network conference, district council we called it, I was suffering with lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease. Many of you remember that, and I share this, and I'm always amazed that people have never heard this story. And I don't do it for my sake, but I do it because suffering is a great teacher. God is good. What did we learn through that? We don't want to go back and do that all over again. I don't even have to ask Bridget. We already know. One time that's great for us. We're happy. We're very happy to have learned all that we needed to learn. God, please. What did we learn? God's people are really good. God's people are really good. Marriage and family is an awesome thing. Wow, did we learn that through the time of suffering. And is our God faithful? He never failed us. Suffering is a great teacher. Be prepared to suffer, but also be prepared to discover in new ways that God never fails. And don't take it personally. The world is not rejecting you. They're rejecting the loving call of a heavenly father. Always remember that. The suffering that you're going through is not personal. It's about the God that you serve. And finally, we finish tonight. Peter threw this out there for us many occasions. If you want to finish well, then never forget why you started. If you want to finish well, then never forget why you started. Somehow, remember tonight. Somehow, remember this season in your life. If Jesus tarries another year, another 10 years, remember what God is going through your heart right now so you don't forget. He said in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into God's everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He also added this in the same chapter. For this very reason, you want to endure? You want to finish well? Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. And then add to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, add love. For if these things are in you, and if they are overflowing in you, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're not going to be barren. You're not going to be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. People in general, and ministers in particular, who finish well, which I don't need to pass the microphone around tonight. All of you want to finish well. I know that. Everybody in this room, we want to finish well. They are the ones who intentionally surround themselves with constant reminders of why they got into the whole thing in the first place. Surround yourself with reminders of your first love. Surround yourself with reminders of why you're saying yes to the call of God in your life. What are some of those reminders? God's word is a great reminder. Wrap yourself daily in the word of God. Spouses and family keep us grounded invest yourself, saturate yourself as often as you can in these most important relationships. Close friends in ministry, many in this room tonight, peers, they can relate to you like no one else can. They can listen to you. They can encourage you. Don't be an isolationist. I'll tell you right now, the presbyters get worried, and for good reason, when they start to see people who are going off by themselves, all of a sudden, where are they? Where are they? Well, we haven't heard from any. It's statistical fact. When you separate yourself from people of like precious faith, when you quit associating with other ministers who understand you, you get into a place where you start to hear voices that aren't the kind of voices God wants you to hear. Keep close friends in ministry. Exposure to lost and hurting people, people who've been marginalized. It keeps our hearts tender. People who look up to you and are following your example will inspire you to stay sharp and consistently press forward. Surround yourself with these kind of influence. And then think about what Peter said. When you diligently, diligently, 
on purpose, repetitively, with effort, add virtue to the faith that you have. Have you thought about this? What happens when you add virtue to faith? Well, those who are lost, for starters, will be attracted to that virtue, a genuineness in you that they don't always see in what they think are Christians. Don't forget to add virtue to your faith. But then also add knowledge to your virtue. Knowledge to your virtue. Because then those who are following you will tend to stick around because they know you are more than just hype. Ah, there's some depth there, huh? And then when you have knowledge, add self-control to that knowledge. Your peers will recognize your capacity to be trusted in matters of increasing importance because you're self-controlled. We can trust them. Perseverance, take that and add it to your self-control. Those who are over you, those who are responsible for you, will risk giving you opportunities to tackle tasks that are reserved for sharper knives in the drawer, quite frankly. That's how it works. People see in you, they can trust you. You've got perseverance and self-control. That is a very attractive trait when you're trying to figure out who can help us do this. They've got perseverance. They're not going to give up. They've got self-control. We can trust them. Add godliness to your perseverance. Godliness to perseverance. Those who are under you, including your children, will forever be impacted by the integrity of seeing a godly person at home who doesn't give up just like they see in the pulpit or in the church. And then add brotherly kindness to godliness. Those who are in need today, and there are ministers in this room who will say that is the gospel truth. People that you're going to help today who are in need will know you're an approachable friend when you have that brotherly kindness. And many of those who are in need today will remember you down the road with fondness when they are no longer in need and they're in a place to be able to bless. That's not why you do it, but that is truth. That's how it works. Add brotherly kindness to your godliness. And finally, Add love to your brotherly kindness. Love. Your spouse will know the security of being cherished above all others and will be the secret that helps you more than anything to celebrate the best things in life and to hold it together in all those seasons when life gets crazy. If we take Peter's advice, we will assure ourselves of being surrounded by people who love us, people who believe in us, look up to us, people who stick with us, who support us, who listen to us, who appreciate us, and who keep reminding us why we decided to devote our lives to the Lord's service in the first place. And that is why, my friends, I love the ordination service. Because every year it reminds me, it reminds all of us who followed this path before, that why we re-upped and why we did it in the first place, it is one of the greatest callings on the planet. Peter closes out in 2 Peter chapter 3 saying, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed, what holy and godly lives should you live? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt in the flames. But we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, he's promised. A world that is filled with God's righteousness. Are you looking for that day? Could it come too soon? Could it come tonight? Would that be okay? It might mess up the rest of your plans for the evening. But it could happen tonight. It really, really could. This room is filled with people who want to finish well. We want to finish well. Some, there are some days we just want to finish, right? Let's be real. If I could just finish. But more than that, we want to finish well. That's what God wants us to do. Now, normally... At the end of a message like this, as we get ready, I would invite the candidates to come forward. But tonight, for a change, I'd like to invite you to stay in your seats. If you're not ready to embrace humility, please stay in your seats. You don't want to do this. You don't. You don't. For a number of reasons. But scripture says that we are held to a higher standard, a higher level of accountability. And you're going to work with people, you already are, but you're going to continue. And that, that name ordination is going to go with your name. And if you're not willing to represent the kingdom of God, and it's calling your life, and suck it up and be humble, even when it just doesn't make sense, then you really need to stay in your seats. For your own sake, as well as the rest of our sakes. If you don't want to do the hard work of mastering your tongue, 
then don't come up here. Please, I beg of you. I beg of you, people are going to say mean things. You're going to get orders and instructions that you're not going to agree with. And sometimes, even based on biblical reasons, you're going to get mad at Christians who are, who are saying things and making decisions that you know in your heart aren't really what God wants them to do, because it's right there in the Word. And you're going to need to respond, but you're going to need to respond the right way. So it's not just responding, it's doing it in the right way, under the control of the Spirit. If you're not willing to master your tongue, then please don't come up here. I, I know you are, I know you want to be, and we're going to invite you up here, but if you have any second thoughts, tonight's the night. If you're not willing to suffer for Christ, don't, don't. It's hard. It makes no sense. It's just not right. It's not right how Christians suffer. It's not right how leaders get picked on not only by the world, but sometimes on people who are in the church, and sometimes they suffer because people in the church who know better aren't doing their fair share. And it stinks. And if you don't want to push yourself through that, you don't have to. You don't. Stay where you are. And if you don't want to finish well, absolutely, don't, don't make a move. Don't, don't come up here tonight. Because if, if, if you feel like in five years or ten years that oh, there might be a turn and a change and it really is so hard, I, I, I don't know that I can stay, stay married. I, I don't know that I'm in this for the long haul. I mean, I meant it, but... You know, there's, there's a limit, and, you know, if I get kind of bored or discouraged or I have kind of a rough patch, I don't know that I really owe it to God or to my spouse or my church or this organization who's ordaining me uh, tonight through what God has done. I don't know. Um, yeah, stay there. But if you are ready to embrace humility, because you're convinced, even though it doesn't make sense, it's what you want to do because God's called you to do it. If you do want to do the hard work of mastering your tongue, and many of you have done a great job, and you want to keep that a lifelong goal of letting the fruit of the Spirit have control of this most unruly of members. If you're willing to suffer for Christ and say, I'm up for this. I'm up for this. I know, I know what I was getting into. I know there are things I don't expect, and it's going to blow me away, but God is never going to fail me. And if you want to finish well, you want to be able to have a funeral like Margiano had, like Thurman Strange had, where everybody's just saying, man, they stuck with it. I'm so thankful. I probably didn't tell them enough. Now that I look back on it, man, there were, there were long times, stretches. I didn't even say thanks. I, I didn't even let them know. But the whole time I was watching, and man, my family, we would not be where we are today were it not for people like you. If you want to finish well, then we do invite you forward tonight. And we're thankful for all that God is doing and will do in your life.